So how is, how's your uh, week in New York been? It was good. It was also bad, but it was also good. It's very overwhelming to approach the idea that you can just work on whatever you want. You know, the batches overlap. And so my batch starts on, started on Monday. And then there was another batch that was still here who had been here for six weeks. So it kind of seemed like... I got the feeling that apparently other people also had the same feeling and then it was totally fine because I wasn't, you know, alone in thinking this. But I was very confused because you had like the first day there was like, you know, we kind of had like a mixer. We had breakfast. It was great. Had orientation. And then everyone sat down and like was silent at their computers. And it was basically the worst thing ever. And I apparently <laughs> I apparently go into social starvation mode very, very quickly. Uh, and so it really got to me. And so Tuesday, like Tuesday night, I got to um, hang out with a friend of mine from from my DC days. And it really helped. And he helped put some perspective on it of like, you're freaking out on day two and like you still have friends and it's okay. And then, you know, and also, um, so I did code katas uh, this week and taught people about code katas and I used uh, the kata seeds and it totally worked. Oh, awesome. So we can, well, we got to talk about what the kata seeds are, but also we definitely need to talk about what code katas are too, though, because I've explained that. That's one of the, like, that's pretty much the reason why I organized a code kata session was because I explained code katas so many times. And I was like, I'm just going to do a code kata session. If you want to know, you can show up. So... I have a question. So, well, okay, I guess, well, all right, I want to ask this first and then we can do what code katas are. But Justin, do you think that code katas, like do code katas require TDD impairing like a code retreat does or are code katas just like problems? So like would Project Euler be a code kata? Uh, I think so. I don't think they require pairing. I usually test um, myself, like even for like a Project Euler. Well, Project Euler is kind of like open-ended. So it's like find this number. So if you don't know the answer, you can't really write a test for it. Um, oh, true, true. So I've I've haven't wrote a test for those, but like if you're like writing a Fibonacci sequence generator, it might help you to have like a few like low number tests just so you kind of like sanity check your code. Right, because you have to know expected output. Yeah. So I'm a huge TDD advocate, but when I'm in a language I don't know, sometimes I find it really difficult because I don't know like what I'm writing at all. So it's even I don't know enough to write the test. Yeah. Yeah. There were some people doing like doing Julia and they hadn't written tests before in Julia. And so they spent, you know, they spent a lot of time just figuring out how to write tests, which is still learning. So it's still good. But, you know, it's a little, it, you know, you wish they could focus on solving the problem, too. Yeah. Coming from Ruby, I'm really comfortable with RSpec and mocking and stubbing. And that lends itself really well to outside in testing, like test first. Um, mm-hmm. And what I found learning other languages is that if I don't know what's going to be underneath what I'm writing, it's really hard to write a test for it. Like you have the problem where how do you write a test for what you want to do and then like let it break until you write the entire thing behind it. In Ruby, I solved that by mocking and stubbing and only testing that in isolation, but I can't really mock and stub anything in a language I don't know because one, I don't know how to mock and stub anything, and two, I don't know how to write the thing that's going to be underneath this at all. So I, uh-huh. I found that, like, uh, I forget where I saw this quote. Um, I think it was on a slide deck or on Twitter, but they said uh, test first or, or I'm sorry, outside in testing or inside out. Um, doesn't really matter as long as you just test what you understand first. So when I'm learning a new language, I kind of understand very simple, like, functions or, you know, structs or objects and I can test those in isolation and then build something up from all those like well-tested components. Whereas in Ruby, I understand how everything works. So I'm very more, I'm much more comfortable going outside in and testing from the top down. I think the point of the kata is to get better at something that you're lacking in. So if TDD is the number one on your list, then you don't have to TDD. Like, 
I guess that, it'd be awesome to teach. I guess I, but. yeah, I guess I presented it with the pairing and the TDD when I let it also because it was serving my desire to talk to people. So getting people to pair <laughs> was, and, you know, and doing TDD of like a construct around pairing. And some people didn't TDD and that's fine. So, uh, so I guess it's people also didn't TDD because they also didn't really understand what TDD is and that's okay too. But if they want to learn, then they should try it strong statement. <laughs> um, oh, but yeah, so I guess if we were to define a code kata, what would we define it as? I would say that it's like, it's a, a problem, usually kind of a known problem. Like it doesn't have to be, it's not, I guess I appreciate you making the point about Project Euler. A lot of times you don't know the answer. I mean, I think you do because some of them, I, some of them are like making a Fibonacci sequence. Um, and so it, you know what the expected output is, but the doing an exercise in order to practice the the writing of code without being attached to the output. And so I, I did I did do the and so I made everyone delete their code at the end of the kata. Nice. So I don't know if that's a standard rule, but it was good. It, it, I think it, that rule really does help to break people out of, you know, being attached to what they wrote and just practicing the writing. So according to Wikipedia, kata uh, is not, you know, not a code kata, but just a kata. Uh, it's a Japanese word, uh, and in their detailed choreographed patterns of movements practiced either solo or in pairs. The term is used for corresponding concept in non-Japanese martial arts in general. That makes it sound like pairing in a code kata is a good idea. Actually, it did say solo or in pairs. Yep. So... But yeah, and so people call code katas that because it's kind of like doing a kata except for code. Yeah. But it's not, it, the only thing that I would say that is confusing is that it's not, it's about the problem and not, I would argue this about the problem and not the, because if you were to do it exactly like a kata, it would be more like Learn Python the hard way where you literally type out the exact thing that the book tells you to. Mm. You know, and it would be practicing the writing, which I think there's probably arguments for. I mean, that's why I learned Python the hard way. It's a good, good way to learn. But it's, you know, at a certain level, you have to practice the conceptualizing of the problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, um, when I'm learning a new language, I, if I can look at the documentation language, I understand kind of how everything works. Like if it's a functional language or object oriented, or if I understand the constructs of the language, I might start writing tests. But I will do a lot of experimentation, just writing code, just to see like, how does it work? Um, and I guess, I guess that falls under the kata definition of like practice, but I guess I'm not even practicing at that point. I'm just trying to like learn, like, how do I even, if you want to bring it back to karate, like how do I even walk or stand or. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate when a, a language has cones for that reason. Yeah. So. Yeah. I guess, and I guess cones are kind of like tests, right? Yeah. It's usually. Well, the cones are by, yeah, they, they have a test suite and if, until your tests pass in the cones, you don't move forward. Right, usually get the first uh, failing test, and they'll usually do something like they'll have some variable that blows up and gives you a, a funny message. Like they'll assign underscore 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 to something. So you'll look at the test and you'll know to like take whatever that blank is and, and fill it in with something meaningful. So it's kind of like you're reading a book, but you're you didn't need to like be tested to know you're comprehending enough of it to make your tests pass. Right. There was a talk once about like. Um... There should be a time for everyone when they like write, rec not, I want to say reckless code. I don't remember the term that the person used, but or just be irresponsible while coding and not test and you'll have fun and learn, you learn more than you're not trying to just adhere to practices all the time. That's called hackathons. <laughs> That's what I do at hackathons. I don't, I don't test at hackathons. And then when my project mates are like, hey, do you want to work on this after the hackathon? I've started, I stopped being nice and I just say, no, no, I'm not interested. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not interested in touching this again. It's going to be really nasty. 
Every every hackathon I've been to, everyone says that, and everyone's usually so stoked to work on the project. But then Monday morning oh, mean, rolls around. Oh, everyone, everyone says remembers. that they're going to. Yeah, yeah, they're like, oh no, I'm super. <laughs> yeah, this is awesome. I'm like, no, no, I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, no one, no one has perspective of what their life's like when they're back home from the hackathon. Justin, is there mm-hmm. a site that just has a list of katas? Um, I was doing a Google search. I mean, there's code. Well, let me do this again for it. Because I feel like that could be a special, like that could be a next, a second page on Kata Seeds. I haven't found a dedicated site, but there are sites that do. Well, there's that there's have some codekata.com, like, which has a bunch. Yeah. And that's but run, their site doesn't look fancy. That's right, run by uh, Dave Thomas. Oh, okay. There's also a couple of GitHub repos. There's start one. Yeah. Um, that just yeah. Have so maybe a list we just maybe we yeah maybe we just put a a reference to it in the Kata Seeds project. Yeah, yeah. Which, hey, have, like, hey, Justin, yep. since since I pretty much just intuited what you wanted to do with the Kata Seeds, can we now talk about it on the podcast about what the Kata Seeds project is and what yes, your goal yes, is? Yeah. So because uh, I just like started contributing <laughs> without talking to you. No, and that was that was awesome. Uh, I'm glad that like it came through what, what the intention was. Yeah. Well, also that was that, I think that was Tuesday morning when I was I was starting to have like my social starvation mode. So oh. <laughs> apparently apparently if you just invite me to an open source project during hacker school, <laughs> I will probably work on it. So, so I just had the right had the right timing. Yeah. So think about that people with open source projects with <laughs> JavaScript things that you need solved. In 2013, I went to SCNA, Software Craftship North America in Chicago, which is run by Aethlite. Um, and it was one of those conferences where they have round like banquet tables, single track conference. And one morning they had code and coffee where different languages were at each table. And I sat down at the Haskell table and this other guy, Mike, sat down at the Haskell table and neither of us knew Haskell. We wanted to learn Haskell. Uh, but he knew Scala and he uh, ended up teaching me Scala at the Haskell table instead because we couldn't find anybody to do Haskell. And then later that weekend, uh, Aethlite had a code retreat after the conference. And uh, this uh, this guy, Mike, and I pa- paired during the code retreat. And we wanted to do the, the game of life in Haskell. And we both knew enough Haskell to to write, you know, functions and, and probably test. But we searched for 10 minutes and could not find an example of how to test in Haskell. So it was his idea to say, like, hey, what if there was a bunch of these, like, you know, seed repos or, or, or directories where you could just go in and it already had all the tests set up? So it was actually Mike who knows Scala, and I can't remember his last name, and I've been trying really hard all week to remember his last name. So if you know Mike that knows Scala um, and probably has about six to seven years of experience now. Any uh, Mike. Any, any Mike who knows any Scala. Any Mike who knows Scala, please contact me. Um so yeah, so that was 2013, and then uh, this week, Tuesday morning, I woke up and sat on my computer early, and because I wanted to procrastinate doing a conference talk, I was like, hey, I should do this thing now. And then I made one for Ruby with test unit, and then I made, or I'm sorry, mini test, and then I made another one for uh, RSpec, and then I made a quick uh, like template from those, and then I invited the three of you, and then Pam made a JavaScript one. Uh, which I was really impressed by uh, the fact that Karma. So so Pam made one with um, Node.js and Karma, and uh, it doesn't use exports. No, Karma is a tester, so you can write. It's good for people who tend to write client side code. Yeah. So you don't have to know Node patterns. You don't actually have to know Node to use it. So yeah, that, that was pretty awesome. So yeah, so a a Kata seed is a uh, repo that you can just clone and hopefully just type make or some other simple command, and you you already have uh, one passing test and and the the example is really simple. It's like a person says hello. Um, and then I guess the intention is that you just delete that and start writing whatever you're going to write, whether it's a game of life or like a Fibonacci thing or bowling or whatever you want to do. Um, it's just a way to get going writing tests in a language really, really fast. Um, 
Yeah, and uh, as of today, it, it's been four days, three days, and there are 14 seeds written in 12 languages. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. I know. I besides, say- Ruby, besides Ruby having two, which other language has? Uh, Haskell has one in HUnit and one in HTF, uh, Haskell okay. Test Framework. And uh, if you are huh. Haskell curious, go check that out because the, the way that it, I think it uses template Haskell, uh, which is the, or I'm sorry, not template Haskell. It goes to like a preprocessor where it, let me back up a second. To write tests in Haskell, because Haskell is pure language, you need to like write a bunch of, if you look at the Haskell HUnit seed, the test uh, file, there's a lot of like boilerplate in that file. But if you look at the HTF one, there's like one line of boilerplate and one line of uh, comment at the top of the file that just says to run it through a preprocessor. Uh, and then you just write your tests as you would in any other like language, like just, you know, test whatever. And uh, it, it makes a boilerplate for you. Uh, the Haskell HTF one is also really cool because it's the first time I wrote a property-based test. So... Uh, there's one test that's like, if I make a new person and their greeting is hello, assert that when I greet them, they say hello. Uh, then I wrote a property test, which you just say, um, given any string, if I make a person with that string and greet them, I should get that string back. And I'm assuming under the scenes, uh, under the covers, it just, you know, generates a thousand strings and tests them all. And it's like one one or two lines of code to do that. What is property-based testing? I know you have an example there, but... So property-based testing is generating random input or letting the computer generate random input for you to test things. Um, and I like really like what uh, Jessica Kerr says about it, where if you imagine um, mathematical function that generates a curve, you might uh, unit test that certain points on that curve are exactly the number that you expect them to be, like X and Y. But the way she puts it is property-based testing is given any number, make sure it's in this kind of range, like this box. You draw a box over where the curve should be about and just make sure that all the, the output comes out from within that box. Um, a more concrete example would be, let's say you have a method or function that just wraps a string. Uh, like so if you have... Um, maybe uh, like a CSS display thing, or if you're in a terminal, like maybe you want to wrap it 80 characters. Um, if you have a function that does that, maybe you want to generate random input. Like maybe if you give it a string that's too big, it crashes. Or maybe if you give it an empty string, it crashes, which I actually had that problem in one of my projects when I started playing with this. Um, so you can kind of like test edge cases a little easier than, it's basically it's writing tests for you that, that catch edge cases. Um, the canonical example is like if you reverse something twice, you should get the same thing back. So an easy way to test a list or string or whatever reversing function is to give it random input and make sure that when it reverses twice, it gets the same thing back out. Um, so yeah, but backing up, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm excited to try this out at uh, Software as Craft, which is a software craftsmanship meetup in Philadelphia, where after every speaker, we do a uh, code kata where we pair up on a problem. It's been the game of life for the past few months. I'm not sure if I'm going to change that or not. But a lot of people do do spend time like trying to get a, a test environment set up for the first five, 10 minutes, or maybe even sometimes the entire session they spend trying to like get tests running. So hopefully this helps. Pam, was there anything else you worked on this week at uh, Hacker School? Yeah. I mean, so the first thing I did because everyone sat down and was quiet was I had a project that I had in mind just to just to warm up. I wanted to just make something and finish it. Um, and so I made a little node project that ingests a YAML of your friends and their blog feeds and will tell you what's new since last week. 
Do you mean an RSS reader? Well, no. <laughs> I mean, it's because I don't even do the parsing of the XML because I didn't want to bother with that. Um, but I did learn stuff about node streams and I got to use Highland JS finally, which gives you functional functional stuff for streams or stream-like objects. And I was super duper stoked that I got to use Highland. And so that alone was like, oh, okay, now I'm done with this project. I'm not going to do anything fancy with it. Is Highland um, FRP? Uh, it is, I don't know if you would call it functional reactive, but it, it gives you map and filter and find and. Oh man, I'm hearing so many things about functional JavaScript suite. Yeah. Len. Is that a lead in? Cause you want to talk about Ramda? Or you want Len to talk about Ramda? I think we decided it's Ramda because it's, oh no. No, Ram, I was it calling it Ramda, but it's That's very it obviously Ramda because it's a Ram and there's also Lambda? Lambdas and I don't know what I got Ramda from. So is that you you also say you say Tarjay, don't you? Tarjay, yeah. <laughs> I need to go to Tarjay this weekend. I used to say uh, omnipotent until I was like eighteen because I read it all the time in like books, but I've never heard anyone say it. So oh, Instead it took me it took me like fifteen years to find out how ornery was spelled. How it was spelled? <laughs> yeah, because I always heard people. Well, my dad would say ornery <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Um, and you don't, when you do see it written, you're like, oh, I guess that's how it would be written. But it took me a long time to see ornery. Not completely related, but I, uh, I thought approximately meant exactly until I was a late teenager. Ooh, that's a rough difference. Yeah. <laughs> Cause like you get a bag of, you know, candy or like chips, something it would say approximately 13 pieces. And I assumed that meant exactly 13 pieces that were in there. <laughs> I was just saying, I, I use the word couple to mean like several. And I don't know where I got that from. I think it might be a regional thing. Did you grow up saying like pop? No. Soda no. pop. God, no. Drink a Coke. Yeah. Oh, soda, soda pop. I thought you were saying like calling it dad pop. Oh, no. <laughs> Did you guys ever take that test where it asks you what things are called or how you pronounce things and then it tells you exactly where you grew up? No, yeah, but, but, it's but, extremely I, accurate. but I, well, but I think, I don't know. I think I know too, like it's one of those things where when you know that it's a test, you think too much about it being a test and then you'll answer accordingly. Oh, mm. yeah. No, so, I did it, and it was like, you grew yeah. up in North Pennsylvania. Mm. What are we talking about? We're talking Ramda. About programming. We're talking about, uh, <laughs> Obviously, duh, Justin. You oh, can yeah. tell. So how was Highland? Oh, no, we were, we moved on from Highland. We were talking about Ramda. All right, Ramda. Go. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, Ramda is like a low dash slash underscore replacement, uh, but it does things in a more functional programming type style. Uh, and the big thing that underscore does wrong if you want to do currying and things is that it has the parameters in the wrong order. So, for example, map, uh, the first parameter is what you want to map over, and the second is the callback to do the mapping. Uh, but if you want to do like automatic currying, those things need to be reversed and Ramda reverses those. And uh, all of uh, those kind of functions in Ramda automatically curry. So you can give it uh, one parameter and you get a partially applied function back waiting for another parameter. Did the underscore team ever say why they did stuff in reverse order? So, so breaking news, oh. I, was, I was planning on a abandoning underscore anyway but uh, all over the twitters right now they just released one eight with like uh like a dozen breaking changes so they don't even for care underscore for, yeah i mean it's just weird because i i have i have a friend i have a friend on each of there's a friend on the underscore team and a friend on the lodash team and like I, it's just kind of i mean i guess this is just you know this is really just the same thing as with JavaScript frameworks where you're like, why don't you guys just talk? 
and then, you know, do the thing. But then I guess you get the situation where underscores making breaking changes because they already started in one paradigm and they're probably, I don't know where, like, where do you know where the breaking changes are? So yeah, there's a issue in underscore. Uh, discuss latest changes to master before releasing. Uh, somebody opened it 13 hours ago uh, and then it was released like immediately afterwards. <laughs> so like they renamed keys in to all keys, map values to map object, assign is now extend to own, matches is is match. So lots of breaking changes. Huh. That's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't just, or at least do a, a deprecating release that has has all the new names, but has them alias to their old functionality. Right. Or to their, to their old names. People use underscore like framework. It seems to me like you just kind of piecemeal like, oh, I need I need to get this data into this format. Let me just underscore. Yeah, this. no, no. I'm I meant socially like a framework in terms of oh, okay. Like they're they're trying to they have a goal and you know different sets of people set out to make different projects that all serve to solve the same goal. Um, I would think that functional functional functions or functional tools on JavaScript would be one of the things that you don't need to have that many of, but. Apparently I'm wrong, but yeah, seems- I'm really, I'm really curious that, you know, that would be a good conference panel. Some conference do that, get, get a core contrib from each of these. It seems Highland and underscore and also Highland and Ramda, the same thing from browsing the site. Nah, I don't, no. Highland doesn't compete with them. Okay. So, cause Highland specifically for stream and stream like objects, whereas underscore and those are generally for JavaScript in general. So what's special about a stream-like object? Is that like a so just a I'm, thing? I'm a stream still of wrapping my head in? around it. Well, yeah, I mean that's what a stream is. Um, but a stream, a stream, and stream-like objects would also include generators. Would also include arrays. Um, so series of values up to an infinite series of values. So if I open if I open a, a fire hose of data and I don't know when the data ends, uh, it gives me tools so I can still do stuff with the data without having to wait for the data to end. Okay. Which is awesome. <laughs> Let's review that. <laughs> so wait, if you map over a stream, you're going to get like a, a finite array back? Or is that thing going to... Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still wrapping my head around this. And so I, you know, hopefully someone will tell me the things I got wrong. But that like in, in my project where I did the, you know, iterate over, you know, map over the the RSS feeds and tell me what's new in the last week, that gives me a finite data set because it's a, you know, or it's a filter, filter where. So, but the order, I can do those operations on, like the order won't be fixed. Mm. So Highland has basically like map and stuff, but it also has special methods to, to deal with the stream-like no. objects. Nope, nope. It uses map on stream-like objects. If you tried to use, you like, I, I, you know, this is a good thing. Like, I should probably just read the source code um, <laughs> because, like, if you so if you take an like, well, you can take an array and put a map over it, but I don't think you can take a generator and be like generator dot map. I don't think you can do that without using a library or building a construct for it. This kind of sounds like FRP, but I yeah, don't have but much but there's yeah, but there's more than one kind of FRP, and like is like so functional reactive programming is that just whenever I have a map function? I don't know. I don't think so. Like well, I thought, I thought it was operations and streams that were you know. Well, I mean, I think you can. I think you could use it to do functional reactive programming. Mm. But like, does my entire program follow those principles? I don't know. Probably not. Right. Len gave a really good talk about uh, Ramda yesterday at Prompt because it was really, really good. I, I liked it because he kind of like, 
very gently introduce people to Haskell in his own way. <laughs> well, that's kind of what Ramda is trying to do. Is it? I started out trying to write a talk uh, about functional programming in underscore and then realized people who are serious about functional programming in JavaScript hate underscore because the parameters are reversed. And very timely, I think, Lodash, too, just uh, released, or somebody released Lodash-FP, which is Lodash with all the arguments reversed. Huh. And I think there's automatic currying in that, too, so it's very Ramda-ish. Yeah, it works really well, at least in Haskell, when the, when the I guess, callback or the function is first, because... The example I always use is like if you want to, if you have a list and then um, you have like a function that doubles a number, if you want to double a list, you could make a function that takes a list and then inside the function it um, does a map and then for each element uh, doubles the element and then returns it all. But in uh, Haskell or, or in Ramda, the definition of uh, a function to double a list is like um, if you call double list DL, the definition of DL is just DL equals map double. And then there's no there's no argument for like taking the list because map already takes an argument for a list. Map takes a function and a list to map over, map that function over. So if you just give it one argument, you just return a function that takes a list and doubles it. Right. And actually, uh, in there's a lot of like uh, Haskell tooling or uh, or linting tools that if it notices you have an argument at the end of an argument list and you're also passing that to the end of your function body at the end, it will say, hey, why not just take this off? I'll put a, a link to it just in the show notes, but I really like the way you can compose things with Ramda, uh, and you really started to see the power of being able to automatically curry by being able to pass like a partially applied map inside of a like composition. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. Len, I also wanted to ask you about Meteor, because earlier this week you were like, I listen to the podcast, Meteor's pretty cool. I don't uh, know anything about Meteor. I'm just very <laughs> Meteor curious. That's what you said, Meteor curious. Yes. Uh, so the last uh, ThoughtBot podcast, uh, they had on uh, a guy whose consultancy moved away from Rails and straight to Meteor. Oh. And I was surprised to hear that Meteor apps are actually in production. So Meteor is based I know, off of... I know absolutely nothing about Meteor. <laughs> I know it's in JavaScript. That's all I know. So the demo looks amazing, right? So it's uh, it actually does like the promise thing of sharing code between client and server. Okay. And uh, it uses WebSockets as a transport. So basically, if you save an object in one client, uh, it'll automatically get pushed all other clients. Any CSS or HTML change will like automatically uh, get pushed. And it just seems to take away a lot of that, that friction about oh, wow. having to write like a client-side app and then a server-side app. You basically write them both at the same time. And everything just automatically syncs from the client all the way down to the server. And does that um, like automatically work server-side rendering too? Like if you wanted something for SEO, do you just write a view and it renders it through HTML? I am not sure if it's server-side rendered at all. Okay. Actually. All right. But they also have phone gap integration, which I'm always skeptical about, but people claim that it works. So you can also basically just write your one client-side app and then export it or import it in phone too. You're skeptical about the that user experience? ever working. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because phone gap itself is pretty simple. Like if you could very easily have a, a binary that takes a JavaScript app and spits out a phone gap executable. So last year there was this hubbub at ET about like, the Meteor code base not being well tested or like them not testing something. Do Wait, you know? You mean I complained about that. Did did you? I don't know. I think I tweeted about it. Okay. Has that changed at all? And did that change your mind? Or? No, I didn't look. But okay. yeah, that turned me off like a couple of years ago when I first saw that demo. I, I saw the, the Meteor demo and it was kind of like the feeling you had when you first saw the Rails blog in 10 minute demo. It was just super magical. And then I looked at project and there wasn't a single test. I might try it out just to get even if I don't end up using it or liking it, maybe it will open my mind to other ways to do things in other languages. Didn't Rails, or doesn't Rails have a streaming part to it? 
I mean, yeah, plenty of HTTP servers have, mm-hmm. you know, the ability to stream or do like WebSock connections, but I think it's all the other stuff you need to do to actually like automatically share data. It seems like a security nightmare. Like, how do I prevent my user object from not showing up on everybody else's page? Or I don't know. I'm sure. I'm sure there's like ways to do that. Messaging rooms comes to mind. Like, you have the rights to see one room, and then nobody else can see your room. Speaking of rooms, sometimes people put desks in a room. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Is that segue? That was great. These are my favorite episodes when we talk about not the topic for the whole time. So, Jervon, what did you want the topic to be? <clears throat> I just wanted to hear about like what your ideal setups are for your what home is, office. What is your ideal setup? What is my ideal? so right now? I have <laughs> yes, uh, I have a, a simple IKEA desk like we have at the office, a longer version and a somewhat uncomfortable chair to keep me sitting straight. <laughs> Is that on purpose? <laughs> yeah, I bought it on purpose. Um, and at first I didn't use it, but now I'm using it more and more. Um, and I sit nice in it. And I have just a monitor. Uh, I'm thinking about getting a monitor arm, but I'm not sure if that's worth it or not. Um, I got two monitors. I have two monitors, but I only use one. Um, the air gets, the MacBook Air gets a little funky when you try to power two monitors. Mm. Um, so yeah. And just the wireless keyboard and mouse. And good speakers. They're mandatory. So, but recently, one of our coworkers built a pretty sweet setup too. Um, and hey, I went, but, yeah, I went through a phase of not wanting to work at my desk, just working at coffee shops, or just not in my apartment. Uh, but I think I'm starting back to want to work here, especially being negative fourteen, right? Or feels like negative fourteen right now. You usually don't want to leave your house. Yeah, I don't work from home often enough to need any variety where I'm working. But if I work from home full time, I probably would uh, venture out a couple times a week from places. But yeah, the 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 setup you mentioned was uh, he had built a standing desk in the wall where he just mounted a desk against the wall with these two pipe supports on the wall. So it almost looks like a, I'm not explaining it, like a wedge. It was like one of those beds in a small, in cities where there's really a lot of population and they where fold they f- into the wall. But his isn't fold, it's just always there. Uh, but I thought he could take it off easily or something like that. I think it's screwed on. Okay. Um yeah, it was I. So I had built an IKEA standing desk when I worked remotely, uh, and it was just a it was a bookshelf with a bunch of other stuff and a desk on top to make it the right height for me. And that was we still have it in our in our basement. It's like a craft table now, um, and I really liked working at it occasionally. But I, I stood for three months only, and I come to the realization that I really want a either a motorized standing desk or two desks with like two monitors and two mice that I can switch between, because I don't like standing all day. Uh, it makes my like my knees lock and my feet hurt. Well, I, I, I sometimes I, I sometimes just think better sitting down. It depends on the problem. Or if I'm gonna watch a video, I want to just like relax. I don't want to stand and watch a video or read yeah. an article. Like I want some kind of interface so that I can do that. Speaking of watching videos, that would be a cool setup if you could like switch between standing and sitting, and then if you want to watch a video, like project your monitor to a TV and sit on a couch. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you can do that with Chromecast and stuff, so it's like, it's very possible. You can just, you know, swing it to the TV. I think my dream setup would also include a massage therapist, just in resonance. Or like a personal chef. Yes, also a personal chef, so snacks whenever I want, you know. Personal chef for one. Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's what personal means. <laughs> yeah, it feels normal when like... When you have company? Yeah, but if you have a chef for you, I don't know. I wouldn't mind having a chef though. So what's your setup like, Justin? So I just also have an Ikea desk that I... I think this is at least uh, 15 years old now, but it still looks fine. Um, I have a 27-inch Thunderbolt display that some previous employer bought for me. I did not buy for myself, but I'm very grateful that I have that really good contrast and really big. 
And uh, yeah, it's pretty. I sit. I don't like. I said earlier, I don't work remotely enough to warrant investing in a standing, sitting, like motorized desk. Um, but if I did, I would definitely get one of those. I think. Uh, I also wanted to talk a little bit about. Well, let's let's go to Lynn first. Uh, I currently really don't have a setup. So when I was working uh, at the co-working place in D Hall all the time, I had a setup there. I got a 27-inch monitor and a little clicky keyboard, and I left that at Indie Hall. And now I'm I'm no longer full-time at Indie Hall. So when I'm home, I just work at my laptop. Clicky it's like super bad. Len, didn't you have this really super high bad. thing what? near your desk? Didn't you have a a stand or something for your keyboard or your computer that's really that's like eye level? I remember seeing that. Maybe it's the wrong person. It was similar to Mike Topa's uh, standing desk contraption. No, no, I hate that thing. I had one of those things that I put my laptop on, and I actually okay. killed a MacBook because of it because <laughs> it wasn't stable, and it, like, slipped off the desk, and my, my computer got coffee dumped all over it. I, I was just going to ask. I was just going to ask. Oh, you, there was a computer you didn't kill from dropping liquids on it? But. <laughs> <laughs> nope. I've drowned, like, three MacBook Pros. It's a problem at this point. Yeah, I don't think um, Lynn using a laptop is too bad. Like I've, I've seen his posture before. He has really good posture and his eyesight's good enough that he can see the screen. It's really bad when I use a laptop because I'm like hunched over it and I'm squinting. Yeah, I had to work on, on that. I still work on that. We have the CrossFit going for you. Probably helps you your posture a little bit. I think it makes you more aware of it. You do a lot of exercises. We don't have mirrors, so you always have to kind of consciously know what your back's doing. Mm. Is that like a CrossFit thing? Like no, no mirrors? No, there's not a single CrossFit gym with a mirror. Huh. You mean you don't like lift weights and like watch yourself doing it? No. <laughs> <laughs> It's not like every other normal gym. I have seen that in gyms where like somebody's working out and then they like do a rep and they go stand in front of the mirror and like pace back forth. It's motivation. Go back and crush it, bro. Or even when they do the dumbbell. Usually the dumbbells are in front of the mirror. Bicep curls. Yeah, you bicep curls. (laughs) Bicep curls aren't allowed in CrossFit either. (laughs) Kettlebell curls. So you're going to ask Lena a question, Justin. What was that? Yeah. Mm, I forget. Or no, there was something you wanted to talk about. Mm. Oh, uh, I, I guess thinking about home setup got me thinking about like when you work remotely. Like, Lynn, I know you don't like working from home when you're working remote because I guess you don't have the space or whatever. I just like having people, people around. Yeah. I got burned out after a year of working from home, so I like being around. Some people have like families that, you know, live at home during the day, during the workday. So it's, I guess it's distracting. Um, I forget who this was, but I was following some programmer's blog when I still use Google Reader, where he had a like a trailer behind his house with a computer in it. So when he like went to work, he would leave his house, walk 20 feet and go to a trailer and close the door. So he was in like an isolated space and separate from his house. So he had no distractions. And um, I, don't know, I just thought it'd be kind of neat if you had the means to have like a separate structure on your property that you could like walk to if you were a suburbanite. Have an Airstream. Yeah, I think it was an Airstream actually. I think that can be huge, right? Because I know when I was freelancing and didn't have like nine to five schedule, I just always felt guilty when I wasn't working. Like I always could be working and by kind of conflating my living area and my work area, I just always had this feeling that I should be working if I wasn't. So I like the idea of coming home and having it just be a work-free area. I mean, even working from home, sometimes you kind of lose uh that boundary yeah and then you're like oh you know i'll just spend a little more time on this and then it's like six o'clock and you're still like banging your head against the wall it's like yeah the the period i did work from home it was really important to like five or six o'clock or whatever to like turn the computer off or or at the very least turn the lights off in the office and close the door and not go back in because it is really tempting to like oh i'll just you know answer this question or i'll do this one thing um i like how talking about home setups got something talking about working at least for me (laughs) i guess they go hand in hand 
Pam, do you ever work? Do you have a home thing? Oh. I do, but it, it's not really good anymore. So at our before we moved, we eventually because also the the issue that we run into is well, we have shitty IKEA desks that I really hate. I really really hate them. Um, like I also hate IKEA things, but um, so we ended up in a situation where it somehow makes the most sense to have my desk and my husband's desk next to each other, and I kind of have like a personal. I don't know. I'm sure this will resound with people, but it's really awkward to say. But I have like a personal desk bubble. Like some office spaces really, really bother me because people are just too close to me. Like Mm -hmm. I love people and I get socially starved really easily. But you need to get the F away from me (laughs) because I need my personal bubble space, especially when I'm thinking that like if you get close to me, it's a threat. It's like like, I think this is like deep brain stuff. And so even like this person that I love (laughs) sitting next to me, it is just way too close. And so like, I think there was like a gift too of, you know, if I'm going to work, sometimes he just wants to like run around me in circles and talk about things. And I'm like, I need you to go away right now. Like, I love you, but I want you to be on that side of the room and not this side of the room. And so that's, that's what I'm really unhappy about with my setup is I just don't think I have, cause, and also he's in school, so he needs a desk now. And so, so it's, you know, I mean, I guess I saw, I, that's why the dream home setup for me is, I don't know, having more apartment. Mm. But and that's why I put more effort into defending my workspace at my office and saying, like, this is my workspace. And I actually kind of made someone move when we moved desk recently because I was like, you're too close to me and I need you to move. <laughs> um, and I won. And <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, I've seen it's not my your... proudest moment. But yeah, I have a night. Yeah, you've seen my setup. It's I've, nice. I've seen your your office and they, they do put people like really close. Like sometimes people it's like really close. Yeah. Two I, to three people in a corner. Um, yeah, I told some. Yeah, I, I got someone away from me um but when i guess is building a whole other building in philly to spread out yeah but then they want to hire everyone to fill it and then they'll be like oh now we're out of space (laughs) because and it's just you know that's why like and i you know I care about my hap, you know, I try and I, I say this, but I definitely feel guilt about it. But I, I force myself to fight for my happiness and comfort today because that's what I can control. And so th- there, I just say that because there are people who are like, oh, yeah, if you just wait three years, that's three years, dude. Like I will like something bad will happen before then. Buildings take a while to build. Buildings, buildings, buildings going to build, you know, <laughs> but but yeah, so I like space. Actually, the this. And that that also did really bother me here at Hacker School is that there's a long, like, desk touching each other. That also really bothers me with the desk touching each other. Like, if you can't, like, you got to have, like, Switzerland. Like, you got to have, like, a zone in between desks. Like, putting the desks cussing each other really bothers me. Um, but all the desks touch each other and people just, like, sit down with their laptop really close together. So I'm off in the corner so that I have some, like, space to my side. And then the guy who sits next to me seems to he migrates around the space so it's good so i kind of have my own personal space in the corner but i'm actually recording in one of the rooms with a closed door and it's really nice i can see why people claim these desks does it have but glass on it the door the room yeah it's yes like one of those like bubbles like phone bubbles oh i mean kind of like it's a big room like it's a bigger room but uh it does have glass like on only one side of the wall it's like they're it, what do you call it? it's a window <laughs> <laughs> It's called a window. It's flat glass things you can see it's, through. It's got a flat glass thing, and you can so you can see other people. So it's not a windowless room because those are awful too. There's so many like I I did this rant about apartments a while ago to my husband about every 
every time I move into a new apartment, like I would think that someone had never like lived in an apartment before from the way that it's designed. Like there's so many nonsensical things that are just like, why would you do this? Have you never lived in an apartment? Don't you like closets? Like, why would you lay out the closet like this? My closet has like a weird slope for no apparent reason. I don't know why, but like, it's really weird. And you totally could have laid it out in a different way that's less awful. I feel like half of the building. That's how office spaces are. Like, you're just like, have you never, like, God, people need to pay architects more. <laughs> or a feng shui uh, sultan. They're called architects. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, but really, like, this is, like, no joke. This is literally the problem architects solve. You, you know, you can hire them to fix your shitty space problems because you are not a good space designer. I feel like half the buildings in Philly were, like, two apartments and then they got, like, merged into one. So everything's a little weird. Mm. At least all older buildings. Well, and they just people, I mean, people live differently over time. I can see that. Like now I have a, I have a washer dryer, you know, and dishwasher, which basically means that like I would blow someone from the 1800s mind (laughs) because I have machines that do annoying work for me. Yeah. So you guys ready for picks? Yeah. Yeah, we can do that. I'll go first. Uh, Since we were talking about remote setups, uh, my pick is actually this iPad app called Duet. Uh, and it actually is the first uh, kind of second screen on your iPad that I've seen that actually works pretty well. So you just install the driver, uh, you hook your iPad up to your MacBook uh, via USB, and it, it basically just works. It's a little laggy, but uh, I mean, it's functional. So it's a it's a good second screen if you're at a coffee shop or something. It looks really cool. And it's I they kind of hide the price, but it's only $16. Yeah, it was, it was reasonable. Yeah. So I can go next. Um, I'm picking, there's this cool, so I'm, I'm, I'm one of the things I'm studying here at Hacker School is algorithms. I started studying Dirkstra's algorithm this week. Um, I'm actually probably going to backtrack and look at more graph um, data structures before continuing on trying my implementation of Dirkstra's. But uh, so visu- visualgo.net, which when you type in the URL, you think visual go. So I thought it was like related to go, but it's, it's visualizations to, with animation to kind of help you understand algorithm and data structures. So it's kind of, it's kind of pretty cool. Is Dijkstra's so, algorithm the, the pathfinding one? Yeah. Shortest path. Okay. So I'm working on implementation and I started in Python. I'm not stuck on it, but we'll see. I'll put it up on the internet when I'm finished. If I finish caveat. I can go. Pam, are you done? Yeah, I'm done. All right. um, so my music pick this week is a song called Picture You by an artist called The Amazing. And then my programming pick is um, a set of color schemes called Base 16 um, for Vim and Terminal and all your editors. Um, it's very pleasing to the eye. That's it. All right. Um, I have two picks a week. One is rubynewbies.org. Um, somebody made a Slack uh, community for people new to Ruby. Um, and if you go to rubynewbies.org and scroll to the bottom, there's a sign-up button. And you click that, and then, then you uh, request a Slack invite, and then you're in a Slack chat room with other people that also want to learn Ruby. Um, my other pick is uh, GitHub. Uh, so instead of G-I-T, it's G-E-T-H-U-B. And when you type it in Google, Google will be like, do you mean GitHub? And you'll be like, no, I really meant GitHub. And it's a Go command line utility, which... So I have all my, probably like a lot of other people, I have all of my projects in one directory called code in my home directory. 
GitHub assumes a slightly different structure where you have uh, a folder, let's say it's called code, and then the organization or username, so Justin Campbell slash, and then the project name. Um, <clears throat> so I ran GitHub and gave it a new directory of, of GitHub. Um, and what it does is it goes and fetches every repository on GitHub that you have access to and clones it. And then if you run it again on the same directory, it will fetch everything. And it runs in about, like, I have access to apparently like 350 repos, and it takes about 10 seconds to run the subsequent time. The first time took a while because it was downloading a lot, but subsequent runs have been, like, 10 seconds. That's so crazy. I think the, the purpose of it is, like, if you're going to travel, if you're on a plane, if you're not going to have internet for some reason, you can GitHub all of your project, and you'll have them all in your um, <clears throat> fetch Git remote that you can really easily keep up to date with. Um so yeah, I'm probably going to change my directory structure to match what GitHub wants, um, so it so it works better. G E T H U B. So show notes are at Turing.cool slash forty. Follow us on Twitter at Turing Cool, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.